Okay. <clears throat> Let's get started. Um, so we're on session four. I'm not under the speaker. I got feedback, but that's okay. You do, you're in control. Okay, okay. You're in control. It's all about you. We're session four. One was an intro. Two and three kind of went together, and four and five are going to go together. Uh, July has five Sundays, so we're going to meet one more time next week. So uh, let's look at review a little bit. Week one, we looked, we spent a good bit of time talking about context, but I do want to remind us that the overarching question is about relevancy. Is the Bible relevant? And the primary intent has been to look at Bible, the characteristics of the Bible that seem to turn people off. What, what is it about the Bible, just in general, that turns people off? And what we've specifically avoided doing was sidestepping into the other room, which are um, Bible doctrines or Bible teachings about which people get totally stressed out and frustrated and and enraged and all kinds of stuff. Um, we've not done that. Um, but we're going to have to do that today because the questions that we've been looking at are questions that are at the top of the culture's questions about the Bible. Some of them are about the Bible, but some of them are, are just, they sort of stand on Scripture, and that's where, that's where today's going. So... Um, Week two, we talked about uh, two questions. We sort of half answered, uh, halfway answered question number one. We did answer number two, although in abbreviated form. And then in week number three, we finished answering question number one. There was a lot of material there. Uh, we covered a lot of topics. I like college students. College students are great research subjects. Um, they will do anything for a little bit of money. They'll do anything for pizza. Uh, I mean, they are just wonderful. The problem is their answers do not necessarily transfer to the general population. I mean, after all, they're only 18 to 22 years old or something. So, But still, they're really useful. Um, students who go to Christian universities are a subset of that, and they have a particular use. A lot of Christian colleges take very seriously their role in trying to help students become more mature in their faith walk. And so early in the process, they often ask questions of the students to help them identify where they are in their faith journey. What, what's it all about? Is it, is, is it somebody else's faith or is it mine? And, and, and one of the questions often goes like this. If you could take out any part of the Bible, what would it be? Well, that's a great question for any of us. Right? I mean, what, it, what in the Bible is just incomprehensible or so distasteful? The Bible would be a whole lot better if this section, that verse, this passage, this concept wasn't in there. That would be a lot better. I, it would be a whole lot better. So I happen to have some survey results, and so one of the top answers is going to drive this week and spill over you know, into next week. So, and it may really kind of 
surprise you. I'm going to rephrase their answer. I'm going to rephrase their answer a little bit. So here's the question. How do you expect me to believe in a God who commits and commands genocide? When that came up, I started digging through the general literature, and it turns out once I scrape away all the all the rhetoric about sex, gender, marriage, and all that kind of thing people are all upset about, this one is right up in the general population. It's right, it's right up there. Violence in the Bible, particularly related specifically to this question about God uh, condoning, committing, or commanding genocide. Now let me tell you about this. This topic could easily span a class spanning from Genesis to Revelation. And Christian thinkers are all across the board on this. This defies some easy answer. So it's not like we're going to wander around and you're going to think, oh, wow, isn't that brilliant? We've got an answer. There are are a lot of ways to think about this deal. And they all have upsides and a lot of downsides. It did make me think about if I were to teach in a carve-out class downstairs, one of the one of the classes I've never, ever, ever taught, ever thought about, are the imprecatory psalms. Those are the ones where, like, uh, uh, I really want to dash the children's, my enemies' children's against the rocks and stuff like that, you know. I think they're in there for a reason. There are uh, psalteries that take out the imprecatory psalms because of violence in them. But they're there for a reason, and I think that would be a, I think that'd be a, a really interesting study. Probably Carter. Probably wouldn't kill everybody. But. This question, by the way, is an excellent example of begging the question. Begging the question. Begging the question is about instead of trying to prove the conclusion, it assumes the conclusion, which is a logical fallacy. So we're not going to, not going to talk about all that, but that's, that, 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 this is a perfect example of that. So we're going to break, like we've done before, we're going to just look at the question first. So first we're going to look at the first part about God and what he commits or what he might command. So we're going to look at that. And then we're going to focus in on this word genocide and see what that's all about. And then then we're going to look at some other things. To look at the first part, we need to first look at five events specifically in the Old Testament, in which a lot of people died. Now I'm going to read, for those of you who love to hear Scripture read, you're going to love today. <laughs> so just hang in there. Those of you who fall asleep, don't do it. I mean, just bring your toothpicks properly in there. First one is the flood. Genesis 7, starting at verse 17. The flood continued for 40 days. What I want you to listen for in these five events and in these passages, I want you to listen for sort of key words and key concepts. There's some downsides and there's some upsides. There's some bright, sparkly things in here. And you just need to kind of be, just let the Spirit wash these words of God over you as we go through them. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth 
birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock to creatures that crawl to birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left, and those that were with him in the ark. This, as you remember, is the story of Lot. Abraham intercedes with him, before him on his behalf with God. Genesis 19, starting at verse 23, the sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like smoke of a furnace. So it was. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval and he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. This is the eve of the Exodus. In chapter 12 of Exodus, God says, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. So the promised land lies just ahead. There's, convers there's conversations about it. Deuteronomy, the first part of chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are going to possess and he drives out many nations before you, the Hethites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. 
And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Saul, first king, was given an order. 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel told Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people Israel. Now, listen to the words of the Lord. This is what the Lord of the armies said. I witnessed what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. So here's a question. Little pop quiz. Those of the five, what do you notice about the first three compared to the latter two? This is real easy. I mean, you're going to have to answer something, answer the easy ones. What's what's the difference between those two groups? Yeah, God committed the first three acts. He he delegated the, the last two. That's exactly right. So let's flip to the second part of that question. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about the first part of the question, right? Any doubt? No doubt. Let's look at the second part of the question. This is about genocide. Now this was a term that's just coined less than 100 years ago in, in the mid-20th century. Uh, uh, Raphael Lemkin, Polish lawyer, immigrated. He made up this word from a, a Greek word and a Latin word. And he went on to draft this Convention on Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And the newly established um, United Nations General Assembly, this was the first human rights treaty they adopted, was this. So some of the verbiage out of this helps us define, at least by that, what genocide is. So Act, the Article 2, defines as any of the following acts, which we're going to look at, committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. So this is a group identified in specific ways. And what can you do to this group that would qualify as genocide? Well, killing its members. That would be like easy. It's easy to Causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Okay, so let's just look at some 20th century examples of events that have met this definition. 
They are literally universally identified as genocide. In what is widely considered the first genocide of the 20th century, the Ottoman Empire subjected Armenian Christians to deportation, abduction, torture, massacre, starvation during World War I. The genocide literally started on April 24, 1950, when Turkish government, when the Turkish government arrested and executed several hundred Armenian Christian intellectuals. A group of Turkish nationalists known as the Young Turks organized killing squads or butcher battalions to carry out, as one officer put it, the liquidation of the Christian element. An estimated 1.5 million of the 2 million Armenians living in the Ottoman Empire died between 1915 and 1923. That qualifies. The Holocaust, a systematic state-sponsored persecution and murder of 6 million European Jews by the Nazi German regime and its allies. Anti-Semitism was the foundation of that portion. During World War II, Nazi German Germany and its collaborators killed nearly two out of every three European Jews using deadly living conditions, brutal mistreatment, mass shootings and gassings, and specifically designed killing centers. But that's, that wasn't all. Additionally, the Nazis murdered approximately two to three million Soviet POWs, two million ethnic Poles, up to one and a half million Romani, 200,000 handicapped political and religious dissenters, 15,000 homosexuals, and 5,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, bringing the total genocide toll to 11 million people. One of the most horrific genocides to cover after the signing of this genocide convention by the General Assembly occurred in Cambodia between 1975 and 1979. During that time, a million and a half Cambodians out of a total population of seven to nine million died of starvation, execution, disease, or overwork because of Paul Pot and his communist Khmer Rouge movement. Side note, to date, United Na there's a United Nations tribunal about looking at this. They convicted only a handful of Khmer Rouge leaders of crimes against humanity. The fifth one, the Rwandan genocide, was a mass slaughter of Tutsi and moderate Hutu in Rwanda by members of the Hutu majority. During the approximately 100-day period from April 7, 1994 to mid-July, same year, an estimated 800,000 Rwandans were killed, constituting as much as 20% of the country's total population and 70% of the Tutsi then living in Rwanda. Okay. So now we know why people ask the question. They put those two pieces together. What we read from the Bible with what people know about genocide. 
So we need to kind of sift through some ideas that help us kind of process uh, this thing appropriately. When you use the word genocide, a modern term, a modern idea, and transport it back over and apply it to the ancient Near East, it's a, it's a little difficult. Many academics, and there are academics who spend their career, there are journals about genocide. Many academics who study these topics say there was really not a lot of genocide technically in the ancient Near East. Because even though the Assyrians and the Egyptians could be lethal, they didn't tend to kill people because they were part of a group identity. They just killed people. They were in the way. It... However, the Old Testament passages dealing with the conquest of Canaan are difficult. So, as again, this topic and it's all these subplots could easily be a four to six week class downstairs, but let's, let's plow ahead. A generation or so ago, these are some terms, Old Testament terms, that clearly have God all wrapped up in them. A generation or more ago, Shalom was big. I mean, Shalom was mentioned from pulpit. Everybody, everybody was like Shaloming. It comes from Shalom, means peace. Uh, the first time it's used is in Exodus 21-22. It's used 14 times there. The core meaning of shalom was to make something whole. Now remember, this is a description of God. Not just a practical restoration of things misplaced, lost, or stolen, but an overall sense of fullness and completeness in mind, body, spirit, and estate. In the last decade or so, we have heard a lot about Hesed. I mean, we've heard a lot about it. It's one of the Hebrew words, one of the key Hebrew words for love. There's a range of meaning, but the key concept sign Hesed is a completely undeserved kindness and generosity. English translations use really kind of clever terms, loving kindness. It starts with the King James and it's used in other texts. Uh, loving kindness, steadfast love, wonderful love. Isaiah 54 encompasses beautifully. It reads, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love has it. For you will not be shaken. Bottom line, Hesed intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue. We all know about the first two Hebrew words. This third one, not so much. Harem, the meaning of this word is somewhat obscure. It rarely occurs outside the Old Testament. Uh, there is an Arabian text, 700 B.C., and a Moabite, and 850 B.C., and that's it. The rest of the terms are intra-scripture. It mostly occurs as a noun, Harem, or as a causative verb, put something to harem. Uh, somebody causes someone else to do something. Okay. Harem in the Old Testament, there are three distinct kind of uh, 
passages, types of passages in which this word is used, and contextually we're able to flesh out what's going on, and sometimes specifically, and so that carries over into other the other two. So let's just look at a few of those. The first one, harem is punishment for Israelite idolaters. Whoever sacrifices to any gods except the Lord alone is to be set apart or devoted to destruction. That's harem. That's harem. So it doesn't, there's not much context here. But this next one is also about idolaters. The longer passage is in Deuteronomy 13, starting in verse 12. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God has given you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and led the people of their own town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known. Then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true and has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely. Harold. Both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. This passage connects harem and sacrifice as the burning of the city is a whole burnt offering. The second class of meanings is gifts given to priests. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, uh, every devoted thing shall be yours. The passage uh, elaborates on that. Leviticus chapter 27, starting in verse 21, gives us a little more detail. Let me read just a couple of verses out of there. When the field is released in Jubilee, it will be holy to the Lord like a field permanently set apart and becomes a priest's property. Harem. Nothing that a man permanently sets apart to the Lord from all he owns, whether a person, animal, or his inherited landowning, can be sold or redeemed. Everything set apart is especially holy to the Lord, Herod. No person who has been set apart for destruction is to be ransomed harem. He must be put to death. The third, and this is where the crux of the issue is, is harem is used in these military contexts in language having to do with the invasion of Canaan. The first time it shows up is in a battle against the Canaanite city of Arad. Numbers 21, when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming on the Arthurim road, he fought against Israel and captured some prisoners. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord. If you will hand this people over to us, we will completely destroy Haram, their cities. The Lord listened to Israel's request and handed the Canaanites over to them, and Israel completely destroyed them and their cities, so they named the place Hormah, which, by the way, means destruction. So this is prior to the Promised Land. They're still out, they're still out there, east and south of uh, East Jordan. The next ref- reference occurs shortly after that, 
in the defeat of the Amorite kings of Sihon of Heshbon and Og of Bashan on the east side of the Jordan, Deuteronomy 2 and 3 has law, a chapter each for each of those battles. At the time, we captured all his cities and completely destroyed them. Let's just talk about Sihon, Haram, the people of every city, including women and children, we left no survivors. So when we're looking at the invasion of Canaan, we've got to realize there's context. You don't just jump in in the middle of the story. After the exodus from Egypt, Moses passed the leadership of the Israelites to Joshua. His job was to lead the people across the Jordan River into Canaan and take back the land God promised Abraham. After all, the plan was Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all the world, Genesis 12. Moreover, in Genesis 19, God called them a kingdom of priests, and this land was to be the place where their royal priesthood would begin. The problem was, the promised land was full of other people who didn't want to leave. Who were these Canaanites? Really? Well, guess what? Israelites and Canaanites are related. They're both Semites. When Abram was plucked from Iraq, he was planted in Canaan. His extended family is a merging of, of him and Canaanites. They're, they are related. They're Semite-speaking people. So how does killing the Canaanites fit in, Canaanites fit in with Israel's calling to be a kingdom of priests and a blessing to all the nations? Isn't starting a war the opposite of blessing the nations? Why would God command his kingdom of priests to kick things off with an invasion? Canaanites are also called Amorites and are mentioned earlier in Genesis. Here's an important clue out of Genesis 15. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and they will be enslaved and oppressed. What land would that be? Egypt. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at good age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay. So what do we know? The iniquity of the inhabitants of the promised land is somehow an affront to God, and he had a plan. How do we know what God said? Yeah. They wrote his words down in the Bible, and we read it. Is that what we read? Is that the sum total of what God said to the Israelites on this important topic? It's a yes no question. How many say, what we've got written is all he had to say about it. How raise your hand if you think that's all he had to say about it. The rest of you are like, no. 
How do you know that? Are there other occasions in the Bible or other Bible characters who said way more than what's recorded? Can you name one? For instance, Jesus. Jesus. Always a good answer. <laughs> Job had to say more than one person. Yeah, yeah, Job. Yeah, 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 we probably got it all in Job. <laughs> Several times. Several times. So, so let's just, you just need to park that thought on the back. There's a lot more conversation going on than we know. And, and it helps give you an idea of what God's really interested in. So let's look quickly at these five passages that talk about what Israel is supposed to do as they invade the land. Exodus 23, For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe, wipe them out. Do not bow and worship to their gods and do not serve them. Do not imitate their practices. Instead, demolish them and smash their sacred pillars to pieces. Serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water. I will remove illnesses from you. No woman will miscarry or be childless in your land. I will give you the full number of your days. I will cause the people ahead of you to feel terror and will throw into confusion all the nations you come to. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and retreat. I will send hornets in front of you and they will drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hethites away from you. I will not drive them out ahead of you in a single year. Otherwise, the land would become desolate and wild animals would multiply against you. I will drive them out little by little ahead of you until you become numerous and take possession of the land. Second passage out of Leviticus. Do not defile yourselves by any of the practices. For the nations I am driving out before you have defiled themselves by all these things. The land has become defiled. So I am punishing it for its iniquity and the land will vomit out its inhabitants. But you, you are to keep my statutes and ordinances. You must not commit any of these detestable acts, not the native or the alien who resides among you. For the people who were in the land prior to you have become committed, that prior to you have committed all these detestable acts and the land has become defiled. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it has vomited out all the nations who were before you. Any person who does any of these detestable practices is to be cut off from his people. You must keep my instruction to not do any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you so that you do not defile yourselves by them. Them I am the Lord your God. Numbers 33. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. Tell the Israelites, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you must drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their stone images and cast images and demolish all their high places. You are to take possession of the land and settle it because I have given you the land to possess. You are to receive the land as an inheritance by lot according to your clans. 
Increase the inheritance for a large clan, decrease it, decrease it for a small one. Whatever the lot indicates for someone will be his. You will receive an inheritance according to your ancestral tribes. But if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those you allow to remain will become barbs for your eyes and thorns for your sides. They will harass you in the land where you live. And what I had planned to do to them, I will do to you. Deuteronomy 6. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that you may prosper and that you may enter and possess the good land the Lord your God swore to give your ancestors by driving out all your enemies before you as the Lord has said. Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, Hethites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and powerful than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must destroy them, harem, the only time this is shown up in those other passages. Make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. Which, as an aside, if you destroy them all, what is the marrying thing all about? Seriously. You must not intermarry with them or their corpses. And you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Destroy you. Instead, this is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their carved images. The Bible paints a pretty grim picture of Canaanite practices. Leviticus and Deuteronomy contain detailed and lurid lists worship of demonic idols, sex, uh, gross sexual acts, even sacrificing of children. God makes it clear to the Israelites it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land. It's on account of the wickedness of these nations. Israel's mission was clear. They were not to be influenced by the Canaanites' wicked practices and the cultural systems that fostered and endorsed them. In some ways, not in total, this is not the total, but in some ways... The conquest is more about, you get it? It's more about ending the Canaanites' religious and cultural practices than necessarily ending their lives. Did you catch that? This is not a perfect analogy, but when the Allies go in in World War II, their goal was to dismantle completely the Nazi regime. It was not to kill every German. But the question here is if, you, if Israel left survivors, how likely would Canaanite survivors totally enmeshed in their system, in their culture, in their religious practices, how likely would they be to accept, to worship, and submit to Israel's God? That's a thought question. So that's the why of the con- conquest, but how about the how? It turns out there's a lot more going on with these battle stories. God put firm boundaries on the extent of the conquest. Uh, Deuteronomy talks about it. Uh, it's going to happen over 
little by little. It's not an instant takeover. Offers of peace are to be made. Deuteronomy 20 lays that out. What are the rules of warfare? Sort of like an ancient Geneva Convention. Uh, the book of Joshua uh, indicates offers were made and consist- consistently re- refused. Joshua chapter 11. Not a city made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gideon. So what actually happened? Much of the language of the conquest, which occurs in Joshua, picks up this language of driving out and dispossessing. It is a different focus than the language, the 20th century term, genocide. It's different language. The conquest is the dismantling of a dark cultural regime. In fact, only three fortified cities militarily embattlements were totally destroyed. Jericho, Ai, and Hazel. What does anybody else have to say about it? Barak's already told us. Stephen's sermon, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, right before he was stoned to death from my violence, our ancestors had the tabernacle of the testimony of the wilderness. Our ancestors in turn received it and with Joshua brought it in when they dispossessed the nations that God drove them out before them until the days of David. And then last week, when he was talking in Antioch of Pisidia, Paul stood up, motioned with his hand, Fellow Israelites, and you who fear God, listen. God of this people Israel chose our ancestors, made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt, and led them out with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. There is not a single New Testament reference or someone criticized God or Israel for their invasion of Canaan. Just keep that thought. So here's some points to ponder. The Canaanites in general would never have accepted the Israelite God, doctrine of God and submitted himself. A whole way of life was at stake. Debased religion and totally corrupted Canaanite thought and practice from seed time to harvest. We're presented then with a situation which is practically unparalleled in Scripture. It's, it's hard to take this and apply it across the board. Judgment is decreed on a society by God and Israel's commission to execute it. It's so unusual and so far out of our frame of reference. We, it's, it's not unrealistic to have some difficulty understanding this. Under the covenant which constituted them as God's people, Israel acquired title to the land. This is explicit in Exodus and detailed in Deuteronomy. It goes back to the covenant with Abraham. Possession of the land means control of it and all that goes in it so the national life would be fully developed in accordance with the covenant. To fulfill this, Israel needed total control and total responsibility within its geographical boundaries for three reasons. First, the theology of Israelite worship was so different from paganism, the two could not be combined. Secondly, human instincts being what they are, it's necessary to take a strong stand against idol worship. Thirdly, the ethics required by the covenant were incompatible with Canaanite paganism. The point of reading the Bible is not to find 
ways to square with modern ethics or even to answer all of our questions. The story of the Bible is talking about God's mission to restore his rebellious creation and bring all of humanity back to himself through Jesus. Every part of the story points to this great narrative arc of redemption, even the conquest of Canaan. Similar to Joshua, Jesus came to drive evil out of creation. If anyone doubts God will judge the wicked in violent ways, they haven't read Revelation. Conquest is not the evidence of a strange divide between the Old Testament and its angry God and the New Testament. Rather, Joshua points to Jesus, the true conqueror. Next week, we're going to take this narrow focus and pull back and look at a whole new question that's related to this. Let's pray. Father, your loving kindness overwhelms us. And we cling to you, Father. There are a lot of things we don't understand, but this we do understand. It is through Jesus that we are made whole. It is through Jesus that we are reconciled to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we live and move and have our being. That's the good news, Father. We thank you for the blessings of this community of faith. And I pray your richest blessings on every person here. In Jesus' name.